Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Today's show is brought to you by us, the Choose Yourself Network. One of the most common questions covered on that podcast and by our guests is about self-publishing. James has written a lot on the topic and sold hundreds of thousands of books by leaving the traditional publishers behind. It takes a little guts to take on that risk, but James has narrowed all of the secrets of self-publishing your own bestseller into a single checklist. You can get it at www.jamesaltucher.com bestseller. If you're thinking about writing or just want to publish your own ideas, it's a must-read. Check it out today at jamesaltucher.com slash bestsellers and download your free guide. That's jamesaltucher.com backslash bestseller, B-E-S-T-S-E-L-L-E-R. Thanks for listening, and now here's today's show. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So, Luther, before I introduce you, I just want to say uh, thanks. We were where there was like a miscommunication and somehow we didn't communicate. And then you drove all the way back home to get onto this podcast. And so I really appreciate that. Hey, no doubt, man. You know, I know you're a very influential guy in the book industry, and and you're a great guy, and I like your your picture. I mean, you look like you're an innovative uh, individual. I had to I had to do what I had to do to get to, to get on your podcast. But you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, and and this is from reading your book. So now I'm going to introduce you. So Luther Campbell, better known as Luke from the Two Live Crew, from like. 23 years ago, but now you have a book coming out called The Book of Luke, My Fight for Truth, Justice, and Liberty City. But you know, you know what this reminds me of, Luther, is everything you did throughout your whole career and you were constantly reinventing yourself, you always over-delivered. You always tried to stand out. Yeah, I mean, you got it right. I mean, that's my whole thing. You know, I I, I just try to be a, a, a trendsetter. I don't I'm, I ain't never, you know, like being a follower, you know, even with the book, this, this not a, it's not a, a fashionable thing for hip hop artists to do books, you know what I'm saying? But I think it's important for us to do books to be able to tell a history. And because, you know, uh, shoot, I'm 50 some years old and, and I was in my twenties doing hip hop and I know it's a whole bunch of other 50 some year old people who still love the music and they like reading books and young people should get involved in it too. Well, I've been following hip hop since the mid eighties and I didn't even know 
all of the stuff you say here uh, in the book. But, you know, one thing I want to focus on um, before we get into the two live crew stuff, which is obviously important and you're, you're probably tired of talking about it. But I'm really interested in before then, like when you were a DJ uh, and on page 71, you mentioned this, how you would bring in acts like you would bring in the unknown run DMC or cool Modi or whoever you would bring them down to Miami. They had never even left New York before. And you would have them at your clubs performing. And this is you're right. That's how I became a real DJ. That's how I separated myself out. And I think that's a real lesson for everybody. Like no matter what you're doing, figure out the ways to separate yourself out. Like, and how did you think? to start doing this when nobody else was doing it. Yeah, I mean it was, you know, it was just really really important because every just like you say, you know, if you want to be I was looking at it like, okay, hey, look, I'm here I am, I'm playing these songs and these artists never came down here to perform and I'm looking in the record crates and I'm at the um, I got I got my records from a record pool uh director and I'm looking through them and I'm like, okay, man, I'm we're making these records hot. You know, they're not playing hip hop on the radio. They're only playing in the dances and we're basically breaking the records. You know, I just said, hey, look, to make us different than the other groups that are DJs, we need to bring these guys down. So I just started, you know, looking on the album cover and and back then you couldn't call an agency because they didn't have any agents. Yeah, how'd you get a hold of them? I would look on the on the record and I would see the telephone number of the record company and then the telephone number would then hook me up with the manager of the artist and then I contact the manager and say, hey, look, you know, I'm playing your record down here and uh, I want to bring you down. And it, before you know it, uh, I had those guys on People, People Express was my favorite airline because on People's Express, the guys would have to pay money on the airplane. They didn't have to buy a ticket before. You just get on the plane, and as you get on the plane, the lady walked down the aisle and said, give me the money. But I had majority of my artists who were coming to perform with me, for me, they would get on the plane and they wouldn't have no money. they say, hey, look, you got to wait till the plane land to get the money from the promoter. And it'd be me and the police standing up there at the gate every time. <laughs> That's funny. So it strikes me throughout this whole period and then afterwards that there's a common theme is that you didn't want anyone else making decisions for you. So, for instance, instead of just renting out a club, you would own the club instead of like, you know, signing yourself up to a record label. You would own the record label instead of just like, you know, listening to someone else's music as a DJ, you would create your own music. You would bring in the bands. And then finally, instead of just hiring two live crew to perform you you joined and took over the the rap group so that that's like a common theme that you needed to own what you were doing instead of giving up rights to it a large part of that was i was mostly forced into that i was for, because there was no hip-hop in the south there was no record labels in the in the south that was familiar with hip-hop and and i you know when i first uh you know, got hooked up with two live crew. And when I brought them down a couple of times, just like I said in the book, and I went and took them to try and get record labels to sign them. I did not want to be in the music business, period. I wanted to be a promoter. I did not want to have anything to do with, with, uh, uh, because I didn't know anything about it. When people started turning them down, 
then I had to get creative. What can make this group different? Okay, let, let me take my, the DJing thing that I do and be, become a hype guy in the group. And then we'll change everything that the group is doing. And I eventually ended up in the group. I had no desire to be in the group. So I had to do that from that standpoint. And just like you say, I'm trying to get a group away, sell them to somebody else. I was forced to, you know, to say, okay, I like this music. I think it's going to be hit music. And then before you know it, I ended up becoming a record company. Now I'm a record executive. And, and so now... Everything that I had to do was because nobody believed in. It seemed like it was like, oh, I just want to do all these things because I want to be totally in control. When I try to, you know, do a, a label, a record deal with another company, it's like, oh, hip hop in the South, oh, that's all bullshit. There's no such thing. So being a trailblazer and people not looking and knowing your vision, you kind of become forced to doing it yourself by saying, look, if they don't believe it, I'll put my money uh, into it and then I'll try and do my best I can do. So so again, though, you do what I'm starting to call the loop technique, which is <laughs> you, you separated yourself out. Like so Two Life Crew was already an existing rap group and you got involved and then you could just see your brain working in the book. Like, how do you separate themselves out? Because, you know, New York has sort of had that claim of being the birth of hip hop. California was coming up with their style, which was like more gangster style. Miami, though, does have its own particular flavor. Like what made you what made you decide to bring Two Life Crew in the direction you did? Well, I, you know what I did? It, just like you say, you know, New York had its thing. Cali had his thing going on and and me being from Miami and saying, you know, what I, I looked at it from the standpoint of back then the the, the the hot shoes were Converse. And I said, if kids like Converse in Miami, New York, California, everywhere, then they, they just like the shoes. They like nice sneakers. So it wouldn't be a problem if I create a sound here in Miami and just introduce it to the world. You know, people will hopefully like it. But you how know, did you come up with the the sound? Like, you know, well, it, you changed the group. Miami. The, the, when I changed the group, just like you say, when you got the first two live crew album, two live crew single, one side of it was Revolution, Revelation, and the other side of it was this song Beatbox. The guy who did Revelation named Yuri Vilot, he was the first conscience rapper. That was conscience music. He was the two live crew. Then you had on the other side, Chris doing the beatbox. Beatbox kind of came down the same lane of the music that we were playing, me as a DJ, at a little bit slower tempo, but we could speed it up. That was the hit song that we expanded on down here, what allowed me to bring them down here more to uh, have have shows and parties. So we kind of, I kind of took that and say, listen, the songs that I, I am playing at the, at my parties, you know, because there were hot songs like Herman Kelly and Life, Dance to the Drummer's Beat. There were mass production. There were there were uh, Brothers Johnson. There was Herbie Hancock. There was all these different up-tempo songs, Freedom, that we were playing that I then told Mr. Mix, you know, here's a guy from California. You know, you the producer. I want you to sample mass production, and we're going to do a song called Me So Horny. You know, the first song, you know, I, you know, I'm sitting there looking at the TV, looking at, 
Full Metal Jacket. And I said, well, we need to sample that song. We, we gonna sample, put that in there, me so horny. And then I'm, we, we gonna go in the studio, tell the guys, write about your best horny experience. And that's how we would make the song. So this is, know? so this is totally great. So you basically took kind of this, Miami party scene, which had a faster beat to the music you were playing. You took the songs, you combined them with this one line in full metal jacket. You then had the, the producer kind of just think of the words that, that he would normally say, you know, in, in conversation or whatever. And you made this song out of it. Yeah. And it I became mean, the biggest hit of two live crew. And all, all of them, every song I pretty much did, like, you know, Hey, look, I'm sitting there listening to smoke on the water because I'm, here I'm a guy. I'm I'm a DJ, and in and in Miami there are certain songs that you DJ. Unlike the James Brown and all the samples that they were sampling in New York and in Philly and in in, in LA, I would take the hot songs, the hot breakbeat songs from Miami, and say these are the hot songs. We're just gonna take them and sample those music that that music and put a beat on top of that. Then I would, I would come up with the hooks and, you know, and say, hey, look, you know, hey, look, uh, hey, we want some pussy, you know, uh, and I got that from, you know, one part of the song where I would hear some kids at a football game where they say, get laid, get fucked. You know, uh, I'll take that in and put it in a song. I would take, uh, like, like throw the deep, the, the first two live crew song, that song was, a dance that we would do at our, at our dances that separated us as DJs from the other DJ groups. It was two things that separated us. One, we would bring artists down. Two, we would make these dances up in the dance. So you would come and do, uh, ghetto jumps and it'd be like, we'd take the, uh, country western song or what it was, uh, wild, wild west theme, play that. And then say, jump, jump, everybody get a jump. So everybody jump in the air. Then we had the song where we'll take an Egyptian lover, slow it down, and then call it, uh, ghetto nasty. Then we do the throw the D on, uh, Herman Kelly and life. And then though, we just took those songs and all the things that I would think of at the dance. Then I would then go ahead and, uh, add it on to the tell, uh, tell the guys and we would cook it up in the studio. So at this point, like all the all the groups that you have been bringing down, what did they think of the albums you were putting out or the songs you were putting out at this point? The groups that I brought down, L- like I let's mean, say Ru- Russell Simmons, like you would call up Russell Simmons and you would say, "Hey, Russell, check out this song." What would he say? Back then, I really wasn't letting them. I really wasn't talking to these guys like that. They would come. The, the artists would come to the dance because they would get ready to perform before you know. uh and they would listen to what we playing in there and they would be all amazed. And they'd be like, man, you putting this stuff out? I'm like, yeah. And they would ask me, well, how you doing that? You know, what label you on? You on CBS, Warner Brothers, Def Jam or whoever? No, no, no. I go press this shit myself and I go put it out. And they would, they would take it for a joke. It was like a joke to them more so than anything. It was like, huh, uh, you're not on. You're not on Atlantic. You're not shit, basically. So it's like Atlantic convinced them there was some stigma to being your own label somehow. Well, they thought, you know, being kids from New York and being the fact that they know, you know, they could walk down the street and see Atlantic, Columbia, you know, Capitol Records and all that. They could walk down the street being either from L.A. or New York. You could see these 
things there right in front of you. Some of your brothers and sisters or cousins and uncles need to work for these corporations in Miami. That's different. So the goal for them was to be on one of those labels. And the goal for me was to try and sell the group to one of those labels. But then the, those labels would tell me, uh, that's a bunch of bullshit. And so I had to then put the music out. So when those guys came down and they heard the songs and they saw people dancing and shit, they were more in amazed than anything. People like Red Alert and guys like that who looked at it, Egyptian Lover, and they, they were like, oh shit, Ice Cubes and all them. I would bring them down. They would be, they would be like, whoa, man, this some hot shit. But more so the, the New York groups were like, man, this some, some booty. This is some garbage. This ain't hip hop. You know, and at the time they were young. Let's talk about that though, because you were definitely, obviously, much more sexually explicit than they were. Although I have to say, NWA was pretty explicit as well. I mean, a lot of these groups were explicit, but probably not as much as as you were. Did they think that that was not like real in the sense that you weren't representing some kind of, you know, statement on black culture or gangster culture or whatever? Um. I mean, the, the NWAs, those guys of the world, I became great friends because we were all considered outcasts. Anybody that wasn't from New York at the time, you were considered as a outcast until I started getting friends like Red Alert and Funk Master Flex and, and all these guys. The guys who I became friends with were guys who I had brought down, brought their artists down, but they were really managers. You know, they had ended up becoming managers of these different groups. So I kind of had a better reputation and a better relationship with a lot of those guys, uh, Molly Maul and all that kind of stuff like that. Uh, Mr. Magic, you know, these guys were on the radio and stuff. And, and you know, I had a, so I kind of opened the doors faster for my music because guys had respect. Some of the guys had respect. So at the end of the day, it was, you know, it, it was, it was all cool. But you know, you were the only, at that time, you were the only black owned record label. You owned your own record label. So it probably gave you a lot more flexibility as to how you could market yourself, how you could, you know, reinvest profits and so on. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I don't think if I'd have been on an Atlantic record at the time, I wouldn't have, I was, you probably wouldn't have never heard me so horny, uh, uh, face down ass up, uh, none of those songs like that. I want to rock. Twerking probably wouldn't be a word right now uh, because it probably been so watered down. So it did give me the flexibility to do different things creatively and, and, and as far as the lyrics as well as marketing. Because back then, you got to remember, and I talked about it in the book, you got to remember it was a single driven time of life in the music business. Everybody was all, all hell bent on singles. And what I did into that whole era of changing that, you know, I said, hey, look, I'm going to put a single out as a record executive and then I'm going to cut the shit off at a certain time. Once it gets hot, people start buying, they're loving it. Then I'm going to force the people to buy the album because that's where I'm going to make the most of my money. So when I did that, you know, that kind of changed the whole business and people started taking notice to that in the same way, you know, like I talk about in the book, you know, the whole marketing, my whole marketing strategy Guerrilla marketing, you know, taking the approach like a person does a presidential campaign or a local campaign using the street signs, using the flyers and the posters and stuff like that. You know, I took that whole approach and, and approached that in selling my music. And that, and that was the only way we were going to be able to do it. We had to be shocking. 
We couldn't sing like Rap Run DMC and, and, and all the rest of those guys, you know, and we didn't have that budget. So we had to be shocking. We had to be different. And I wanted to be different with our style of music and our style of look. People look at us like, oh, they're on this album cover with girls on the beach in bikinis. But that's where we're from. It's interesting because, you know, you were um, and, and you mentioned in the book, but uh, you were like an intern in D.C. You saw how all these political campaigns were being run. So you kind of took that knowledge and combined it with the marketing of your music. Yeah, I took let me tell you that I took that knowledge in promoting my parties. I, what I learned in D.C. how to promote was I'm, I'm seeing these go-go parties being promoted and I see the big posters and the signs on the street and all that and then the flyers and things like that. You know, so when I got back and started promoting parties, I started promoting parties the same way to get the word out. And then when I started in the music business, I did the same thing. I took that same attitude and that same concept to promote my records. You know, so so I'm saying to myself, all right, I don't have a budget to buy the front uh, poster counter at this record store. How do I get people to look at my albums when they come into the store? So I start strategically setting up my album releases around big major album releases like Michael Jackson has an album coming out on December 12th. You know, I would make sure that I have an album come out on December 12th, but then my album covers would draw you to it. Like you would go and buy, try to buy a Michael Jackson uh, song, but then you walking down there looking for the Michael Jackson and you see four fine-ass girls with some fat asses and a thong on and some guys laying between their legs. You're like, hold the fuck. I got to look at this. And then you turn over the album and you look on the back of the cover and you will see all these crazy songs, put it in the buck, uh, face down, ass up. We want some pussy. You look at the titles and you be like, oh, hell yeah. I got to get this shit. Or you would be like, oh, hell no. I got to call the police on these guys. And which is, which is what happened. You kind of had both sides. So like the album, you know, your, your, your top album obviously went multi-platinum, but at the same time you went to court, like record store owners were actually being arrested for selling your album, which is crazy given you came well after like, you know, the explicitness of Richard Pryor and, you know, Andrew Dice Clay, all these guys, they were more explicit than you or just as explicit. So how come you think you were singled out to be to be sued and harassed by the legal industry? Let me tell you something. It's, we live in a world where all you got to do is get some people to complain. Then they'll target you. And then you have a bunch of politicians, a combination of people complaining and politicians are complaint to politicians, then those politicians take actions against you. And that's basically what was happening. You had a guy named Jack Thompson that was complaining about us because we made a song uh, called Janet Reno, which was the state attorney at the time. They were, he was running in a campaign for office against her. He eventually lost. And he said that he, the reason he lost because there was this song I made, uh, glorifying this lady, Janet Reno, who became, who ended up becoming the Justice Department head, um, of the country under the Clinton administration. So it, it was like, this guy felt like I ruined his career. So what he started doing was writing letters to different police departments, the governor and all these people, uh, state attorneys all across the state and saying that this music was, 
obscene and these different things. And, and then you had Al Gore wife jumped on the bandwagon uh, with her uh, focus on the family organization. And she started putting all these artists on blacklist. And who was at the top of the list? Uh, two live crew. And now you had this whole machine of these Christian family associations going after us and, and complaining to everybody. And now you got these police departments and all filing, uh, suits and not suits, but arresting us and doing everything they could do. How could that initial court though? So the, the initial court actually did agree with them all and say you were obscene. Like you must have been like incredibly angry because it was just ridiculous. Yeah, it was totally ridiculous. I was like, this guy's an asshole. You know, he, 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 somebody obviously has gotten to him. Uh, this is crazy. This is the craziest thing that I ever heard. You know, and I just knew that it was going to be overturned on appeal, uh, because it was, I mean, it just wasn't right because the test, which was, they call a Miller test, the test, it was a three prong test, uh, you know, based on what's, what's a simple way to explain the test is if there's adult material in the area, just like you mentioned, dice clays and all these different people of the world, if those things are being sold, if you got strip clubs, if you got people selling, uh, uh, adult magazines, you got Playboy channel running, then that's what society wants to hear in your particular, uh, jurisdiction. We obviously passed those tests, all those tests in for him to then still find it obscene, which in my opinion was totally obscene. He was more obscene than the music. But I feel like you always, despite your unique way of getting into the industry and pursuing things, I always feel like people were like after you. Like, yeah, they, you, let me tell you. And, and on top of it, on top of it, you got to understand, I'm taking, I'm taking sales away from these major industry guys. You know, now I'm not affiliated with a major record label, you know, so you have that combination on top of it. You know, you got these guys who are affiliated with these major record labels that are now not selling records in the areas that I'm selling records in. You know, I'm taking those sales away from them. So you had a push from the industry as well to try and, you know, dismantle me or, or keep me in court so long where they'll dilute me in that manner. But, you know, I just kept the fight. And, you know, while I was fighting, I was selling more, selling more records while we were in these fights because then it became, you know, a movement. And, uh, you know, I just kept on, kept doing that, but I always had to fight. It was always a fight, you know, and, uh, even up until this day now, it's, it's always a fight. And that's why the, the book is named The Fight. It's, a, it's the fight. Fight has to be in the, in the title of the book. Cause, cause then after this lawsuit was over, then Roy Oberson sued you for, uh, Pretty Woman. Uh, yeah. you know, even though it was clearly like you watch, any video you ever do, it's all about fun and parody and so on. So you were clearly within the law, but Roy Orbison, uh, sued you for copyright infringement and that you had to fight all the way up to the Supreme Court. I feel like you were all the time and, and Michael Jackson filed a brief against you. Speaking of Michael yeah, Jackson. Yeah. That was amazing. That was amazing. Michael Jackson. And you know, people don't know that to this day. Him and Dolly Parton filed a brief against me. Uh, I, I've always been fighting. You know, unfortunately, I mean, just like you say, you know, fighting, you know, fighting in every court in the land, uh, for free speech, you know, but it wasn't more so about free speech. It was more about, 
you know, me being a uh, independent record on record company owner. It was I was getting it from all different areas and all different people. And so, you know, I took it on. I like I, I wasn't gonna stand down for anything. I could have saved millions of dollars and had millions of dollars in my account right now if I wouldn't have took on these different fights. If I'd have played the political game and just laid down, but that's just not me. You know, I figure I came in this world with nothing. If I leave with nothing, if it's, I, I'm going to leave with my name, my dignity. I'm not going to lay down for anybody or anything, and that's just me. But let me ask you this. Like, after the, the first lawsuit was over and you won and everything, I'm sure there must have been some big labels offering you production deals. The way you described how, you know, Columbia would offer Def Jam a deal. You know, I'm sure some labels must have been offering you deals. What, what, what deals did you turn down? No, I actually, uh, I only got one deal, which was the Atlantic deal. What the record companies did do was they took my model and they created these LaFace records, the Def Jam records, you know, all these different companies, these subsidiaries, because now the younger guys, the younger artists, they're seeing my fight. They're reading about it and they're reading about this guy owning his own record label and he got his own artist on the label, you know, and he's an artist and a, uh, and a executive. So now all these guys wanted to do the same thing. So I kind of, you know, changed the whole way the industry did business at that time. You know, they didn't necessarily run after me. You know, I went and I did a deal, you know, which I talked about with, uh, Atlantic records and, and, uh, everybody, but the guys who I did the deal with pretty much at Atlantic Record hated me. You know, the Sylvia Rones and, and all the people that worked in her department, they all hated me. You know, they, they wasn't going to work my records because I wasn't a cup of tea. I wasn't from New York. It felt like the guys like Mel Lewinna and Doug Morris and all of them, when they signed me, they, it was like, man, why are you signing this dude here? He's the worst thing in the world and blah, blah, blah. And he's going to mess up hip hop. Because now they're going to make the South become, it's going to be about the South and all this. We don't want to work these records. So those were the deals. That deal was offered to me. And again, I, I just, you know, uh, when I did the deal, I went around there like a gentleman before I signed the contract. And I talked to Sylvia Rome, which a lot of people don't know. And I had a conversation with her. Are you cool with this? Because I know what kind of lady you are. You know, uh, I had a good idea as to what she basically sat up there and lied to me in my face and said, yeah, she was cool with it. And her whole department, I signed the deal and it kind of went bad. And I eventually went back uh doing things the independent way. I just didn't trust anybody because I just knew that, hey, look, these guys don't understand my music. They have no clue as to how to market and promote it. You know, I just keep doing what I'm doing in the South here. So so how did the money work? Like, let's say an artist is signed. How does it all break down between the label and the artist? And, you know, because you were on both on the artist and the label side because you own the label. How, how how did the financials work? Let's say I bought an album for $10. How would it get split up? Well, you well, most artists, they would get a percentage, either anywhere from 12 to 18 to 20 percent of uh of the uh net after expenses. I mean the short short story of it all is all the expenses that would be incurred, whether you're paying for uh promotional tours, whether you're paying for videos, 
Uh, you're paying in advance on the production uh, of, of the product. Then after those expenses are recouped, then the revenue sharing becomes, uh, you know, the artists get whatever percentage is in his contract. Normally, artists get a lot of bumps. If you sell a million records, then you'll get a higher percentage. If you sell 200,000 records or whatever up under that, then you will stay at the same percentage. Uh, you would get your advance. You would get, you know, uh, part of the advance. You know, if you take and spend it all, then, you know, into the studio, like a lot of these artists, we, we, we would tell them, Hey, look, don't go in the studio and just stay in there all night with your homeboys because you're on the clock. That's money coming out your pocket. So the, the least amount of money that you spend in production, the more money going in your pocket as an advance for the artist. And uh, that's basically the, the short and simple way of it all, uh, how it all broke down. And so at your, at your peak, how well did Luke Records do, like at, in the peak year? Oh, in the peak in the peak year, we were doing anywhere from 15 to 20 million. That's great. So then you had kind of catastrophe happen because you were this independent-owned label and you trusted maybe or definitely the, the wrong people you you had a problem with your CFO. Yes, yes, I had uh, I had a guy Joe Weinberger working for me, and uh, I originally had a friend of mine who was my accountant, which was Dal Sharpton of Sharpton and Brinson. Before I hired Weinberger, I hired Weinberger because I didn't want to get him. I didn't want to get tax jacked up. You know, I didn't want to lose my company like everybody else, lose it off taxes. And so I hired a tax attorney, which was him. And eventually I ended up bringing him in as the in-house general counsel uh, of the company. And his job was to oversee the contracts and oversee all the finances of the, of the company so we don't get jammed up. He then fired Sharpton, brought his friend in, this guy named Herman Moskowitz, as the accountant. And uh, he brought him in to do do reconciliation of the books and all that and things like that. And at the end of the day, make a long story short, you know, a lot of monies were being paid to Weinberger. It was a lot of checks written to him, himself, him and, you know, because, you know, you could sign up to $2,000. Him and this other young lady named Debbie Bennett, who... She didn't do anything wrong. She was just signing checks, thinking that it, everything was authorized. They were signing checks going directly to Weinberger. And then at the same time, I never had, you mentioned a contract. I never had a contract with Two Live Crew. I never, you know, we were we were never in, in a contract where I had to, uh, where I was receiving royalties. I never took royalties from the group, never did a contract in the group. And before Weinberger, the group never had a contract with me. We were just doing everything on a, a homeboy way. We just splitting everything that we, that, you know, giving them all the money that was made. So when I really kind of noticed what was going on uh, was when I got into a lawsuit with this one Peter Jones, which later on I found out that Weinberger and the lawyer who was against me, they were college friends. And I lost that lawsuit, which was the most bizarre suit in the world because the guy only sold about 50,000 records, if that. All these guys, are in, in my opinion, in my opinion, in cahoots together 
uh, to try and uh, hijack my company. I lost that suit. Then at the same time, Weinberger, and this is in the court cases, he then uh, went and told three creditors I wasn't going to pay them, three of my creditors, I wasn't going to pay them, and that they should then file an involuntary bankruptcy against me. And see, I never knew that. I never knew you could, you needed three creditors to file an involuntary bankruptcy. He told those guys, oh, he's not going to pay you. Well, how you can't get paid? You can file an involuntary bankruptcy and put him in bankruptcy and make him pay you. Why would he do that? Was he getting a fee from them or? It was, it was a, it was a part of the, it was a part of the actual takeover. So we eventually went to court with him and my, and the judge found him guilty for doing that. Because we brought those creditors in and those creditors testified on the stand as to what he did, what he told them. And so at the end of the day, you know, then I ended up going, took an involuntary bankruptcy, turned into a bankruptcy. They're trying to get out of, uh, I just got tired because at the same time that was going on, I was, uh, Weinberger had told me to sign a contract with Relativity Records uh red distribution that allowed them to take returns from my previous distributor, which my other lawyer, Paul Schindler, was negotiating with them and not taking those returns like, okay, we're going to change the barcode. Now your new company, the barcodes will be changed and the old company, his old distributors will settle up his returns with the old distributors. So, New, new distributor, uh, red distribution. You can't say that this guy, uh, you can't take those returns from his previous distributor. So they didn't claim that they had that right. Joe had told me to sign that contract, allowing them to take those returns. Then, you know, they refused to pay me because they wanted some of the artists like Ace Town and Joe wanted the two live crew and, it was, it was a big old fucking conspiracy, in my opinion, to take over the company. You so know, what, was, what eventually happened to Joe? Like he never went to jail or anything? No, he never went to jail. What he did was he ended up stealing the two live crew and that whole catalog. He purchased that relativity purchase what they wanted out of the bankruptcy, you know, and at the end of the day, I paid my way out of the bankruptcy. He then, in order for him not to go to jail, in my opinion, he had to then take some of his money and do what he set out to do. He wanted to, you know, own the two live crew and, 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 and the catalog. He wanted to, you know, and that's what he eventually ended up doing. So, so, so out of all this, let me just ask you, like, personally, what was going through you? Like, were you scared or were you angry or what was happening personally to you? No, I was, I wasn't scared. I was angry. Yes, I was angry because here's Were you sad? Uh, not sad. Here's everything that I worked so hard for the bill. And you hear these stories about, you know, uh, these guys coming in, you know, these guys coming in and stealing your company and stealing your product and undermining your operation. And, I, you know, I was a victim of it. And I looked at it and said, there's other companies, a good, hardworking people, you know, who we, you know, we, us creators, creators, we're, we're not, you know, we're not lawyers. We're not accountants. You know, we're not judges. We just do what we do and we do it best. 
But what we try to do is we try to hire people and put them in position. We try to do the smart, intelligent thing of putting people in those positions to be able to, to, uh, to, to support the company and make sure that the company don't get taken over by the government, not necessarily a person. So these guys saw that, Hey, look, this is a young guy. He's touring, you know, um, you know, he ain't no lawyer. He ain't no doctor. He just bringing in guys to, to, uh, help run the company, do the right thing. And I thought those guys were doing the right thing. But when they looked at it, they saw a situation where they can do a hostile takeover of my company, which is what eventually what they did. So there were times that I wanted to go take a gun and, and, and shoot some of them in the head. But then what I did think, what, when I did come to those different points in my life, I said, look, you know what? Those guys ain't worth it. You know, with them having my catalog, something that, in my opinion, they stole, they will live in internal hell. You know, they have to live with that. Every day that they have my catalog, that they're not paying my artists, and the way they got it, the way they did it, they got to live in internal hell with that. So let them stay and suffer on earth with that. And that's that's the conclusion that I came to and why I never even did nothing to these guys because I mean I I mean my I had a, a real tough uh upbringing and my upbringing said everything in my upbringing said go do something to them guys but then I said no they're going to have to live with that for the rest of their life and I think right now every day they still they're suffering by the money that they're making off my catalog and the things that I created and they they got to live with it so, so now you're, the company was bankrupt, but you didn't have to file personal bankruptcy. Like, did you still come out okay after, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, I came out okay. I mean, I got the stuff that I needed to get out of the bankruptcy. Uh, you know, I, and I always figured I'm a creator. I'm a creator. I can make that shit all day. I mean, and post out of, out of the bankruptcy, what did I do? I discovered Trick Daddy. Then I discovered, uh, Pitbull. Pitbull. I discovered, you know, I had a hot record scarred and raised the roof and, and all kind of other shit, you know? So I, I just know that I'm a creative person. And then I always looked at it. I was like, okay, the guys who wanted to be with them, the H towns and the two live crews of the world. Now let's see if you could be creative without me, you know? And to this day, I don't think them, none of those guys sold anything. Well, let's, let's take an example like Pitbull. So, so you meet him and what does a deal like that look like when you're kind of going to be his manager and, and agent or whatever? Uh, I mean, this is, you know, Pitbull was a thing, you know, he fit what I like doing. I like creative people. I don't like manufacturing, studio manufactured people. So when I heard about this, this kid winning all these freestyle battles, you know, he made my life complete. You know, because hey, I'm a guy from Miami. I'm all about Miami. Everything that I do is about Miami. The music, the sound, the look, the album covers, the videos and all that. But I never had a, you know, I never had a Cuban rapper, you know, being a heavy influence, you know, heavy Cuban town here. I was like, man, I'm not complete unless I have a Cuban rapper, you know, and DJ last, he was doing his thing over there. But then, you know, when I saw this kid, I was like, he's going to make me complete. He's going, you know, I, I, I got an R&B, I got R&B groups that sell millions of records. They said I couldn't do that. I got Christmas albums. I got gospel albums. They said I couldn't do that. Um, I did the explicit shit. I did that. Okay. I got JT money doing hip, regular hip hop shit. That's big record. I, you know, I'm doing my thing. I'm doing good. I say, 
what will make me complete if I create, I find a, a, uh, uh, a Cuban rapper because at that time, Big Pun was hot. He's a Puerto Rican guy. He was hot in New York. You know what? I did, I did just to, just to interrupt. Sorry. I did the website for Big Pun actually back then. See what I'm saying? I, I used to work with Loud Records and Steve Rifkin. Exactly. And so when I saw that, I was like, look, I got to have a fucking Cuban rapper. You know, you had Fat Joe, Big Pun doing their thing and, and by finding Pitbull, you know, by doing that time, it was a lot of the fire was out of me, uh, because, you know, uh, you know, when you, you, you get too invested in a lot of these artists, like Russell Simmons always told me, man, don't get invested in them dudes. They're going to fuck you every time, right? You know, you treat them like a catalog number and I could never do that. And so when all these guys start turning their back on me like that, you know, from the trick daddies and the pit bulls and I'm not pit bull, but, uh, uh, these other guys, I was, I was kind of spent right then. So I'm here with Pitt trying to keep him on the straight and narrow, you know, and I'm fighting to even get his record played in Miami. And I was like, this is bullshit, you know? So I normally I would, I would have a lot more fight in me. And when, when I got him, it was like, you know, he came at a, at a time that, okay, I can still hear and see an artist. You know, I took him on the road with me. We went on the road, introduced him to people, taught him the entire business, how it works, how you got to be hospitable to everybody and, you know, give him that basic stuff that I gave all my other artists. And, you know, it was, it was a great time. So, so were you able to, uh, make money with him? Like, were you kind of part of his? No, no, no. I mean, when I, when I, what, what happened was, you know, I had a couple guys in my label that, you know, they had, they wanted to branch off and he wanted to branch off with them because again, you know, the fight wasn't in me like that. He was still, he was signed to me and then I allowed him to, to get a release. I, you know, and so they ended up doing something with Lil John over at another record label and he blew up and I, I didn't, it wasn't, I haven't, I've not made one dime off Pitbull to this day. And never, and never asked him for one dime, you know. Um, but what you're really good at is time and again, you reinvent yourself. So you went from, you went from all of this and music and all the way up to the Supreme Court and fighting for First Amendment rights and everything that happened to your business. Suddenly you went into sports and you started essentially coaching like the equivalent of Little League for, for football. Yeah. I mean, what happened doing those, doing the, when I first got my first check, I did two things in the music business. I went and bought my mother a house. And then I then uh, started my own youth football program, Liberty City Optimus. And that was this year's celebrating our 25th year. So I kind of did that. And, uh, and I always said when my career kind of died down, I'd go back out and start coaching. You know, uh, when I get... And so when I kind of got a little burnt out of the music business, I just say, okay, fuck it. This the time. This is why I set this up. So I, so about 13 years ago, I went and started coaching. And so these teams that I coach at my program, you know, we started winning national championships and I'm running the, the team like a business. And, uh, and the reason why I started the program is because when I, as a kid, I used to have to go all the way on Miami Beach to play football. So I basically said, look, you know, I was getting home at 11 o'clock at night doing no homework whatsoever, just getting passed along. If I would get some money, I'll start a program in my own neighborhood 
which is what I did. And, and we're here right now. Uh, this year is 25 years and we got probably over 20 kids that went to the NFL and maybe another hundred that ended up going to college, getting a college degree. And so, and then even beyond that, then you, you, did another career change for a short while and you ran for mayor and actually came in fourth out of 11 in Miami. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Was, yeah. It was, uh, I was a close third place, uh, uh, out of, you know, just like you said, out of 11 people. And, uh, a large part of that, you know, when I lost, I was pissed off, but you know, people just automatically figured I would lose and we would automatically figure we would, Lose, but I was fucking pissed to the highest pissedivity because I, I know, you know, I, I'm like, okay, you, you collected $5. You have $10,000 and these guys have 3 million. You know, you're running a race with 10,000, you know, and I, and I said, I'm not going to take my own money and put in, I'm going to, this is going to be a $5 campaign and I'm going to go around and I'm going to do the work. And so it was expected. It wasn't to, to be in, not expected to be in fourth, but be respectable, which we ended up becoming respectable. And to this day right now, people who did not vote for me tell me you need to run. Because when I went and uh, I talked about the different issues in different town hall settings all around this, the town, which was great because, you know, it gave me a, a chance to just meet people from different areas different walks of life, different nationalities, and talk about the issues that they have concerns. And it just allowed me to, you know, you know, I, I just, you know, and when, when they heard me speak and we, they heard me talk about the things that I think should be going on in the city, they applauded it. They loved it. You know, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, they went with the regular politician. And to this day right now, they all pissed off that they got this guy. It's hard. It's hard to beat the machine. And you've constantly been fighting against the machine. And it's just really, really difficult. Yeah, it's hard to beat the machine. But you know what? You could always put some dents in it and you can make people think. Because when you fight against the machine, not a, now if you, you know, a quiet side, if, if it's silent, they're allowed to do what they want to do. But if you didn't put some things in people's mind, then you put the pressure on the machine to either change or turn into fuckers, you know, and hey, if, if you, you get known as a fucker and then your lifespan to be short, then you and the machine to create somebody else to, to continue uh, what they're doing. So now if you were starting in the music industry today where there's basically no stores, no real albums, it's back to being singles driven. It's all about YouTube views and iTunes downloads. What, what would you do to, differently? I mean, if I start up again, which I probably will next year, and develop a new talent, I think I fit great with this platform because it's the same platform that I used before. Yeah, it's you all know, independent. I, it's all independent. I mean, I had to, my videos had, had to be videos that you had to turn on video jukebox to look at the buy. I, I would call, I would call in to download your videos. You had to call in. So I, I, you know, that fits perfect with me. The, the guerrilla marketing fits perfect for me where your marketing has to be done more club driven than anything because the radio stations ain't really playing but 10 or 12 songs in a row. So I, it, it fits me better than a person 
who had to depend on the machine to then make or break them. You know, my, my style of marketing and promoting and, and being a record executive, it, 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 this is what it is. This is what it came to. So I would come and I would have a video that everybody would love, which would be a dance type video because when you look at the dance songs, they're dancing and having fun. And I would have a sexual, sexually driven, uh, video now that sex is not as taboo as it is anymore. It would be more classy and tastefully done than what you would think it would be. So it's, it's some things that I, I would do real creative that it wouldn't be difficult for me to get into the business and sell records. And I mean, the key to it all is the artist, whether or not the artist is, uh, a real artist or some manufactured artist. And when you got a real artist, you could take that artist and put him on a promotional tour and be able to sell himself, you know, by, because of his personality and his artistical skills. Well, uh, Luther, I really want to thank you for spending the time on this podcast with me. I really enjoyed your book. Uh, I want to say the title again, The Book of Luke by Luther Campbell. And the subtitle is My Fight for Truth, Justice, and Liberty City. Uh, you've done great stuff also for, for Liberty City. I think that's important to mention, and you talk about that in, in the book. And Liberty City is kind of the, uh, I don't know how to say it, the, the rougher neighborhood uh, in Miami that you you grew up in. Uh, yeah, man. People, people, you know, need to. I mean, again, like, like I say, this is a whole nother fight because hip hop artists don't do books, and hip hop artists, when they do do books, they don't normally do good. And so, we're trying to break that bar- another barrier down that people normally say, "Oh, hip hop artists, anybody go buy the book because they don't, they don't read books." And I just think uh, people need to go out, purchase the book, and just show the world that. You know, one is a, it's a hell of a book, but then at the end of the day, take another stigma away of how they associate. Uh, and, and again, I think it's a lot about how you separated yourself out in every industry you were in, how you basically chose yourself rather than let or rather than allow the, the labels to choose your, to choose you. Uh, and how you kind of reinvented yourself from career to career rather than sinking down into any one career and, and being just kind of a one career wonder. Exactly. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Well, thanks a lot, Luther. And I will uh, talk to you soon, which I'm serious about because I'm coming down to Miami and I'm going to visit you. Well, God, well you got to hang out with me. Definitely. Don't come, don't come down and get and become no stranger. I'll, I'll be there. South Beach like all the other tourists. <laughs> no, I'll be there. I'll be right there. Okay, cool. Thanks, Luther. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today.